Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Mike Salitro, and today we are thrilled to be speaking with Susan Gold. Transforming trauma into a gift takes a unique perspective. Prevailing through a challenging family dynamic, Susan left the morning after high school graduation and rarely looked back. She made a name for herself, attaching celebrities to brands, eventually making it to L.A. to produce for television and film. Her new book, Toxic Family, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom, is the trajectory of her journey. Susan, welcome. We are really excited to be speaking with you. Hey, Mike. I'm super happy to be here, and I really want to know how you came up with this device. 12 and 30 is awesome. Well, uh, there was really no science behind it, and uh, I thought that we could uh, maybe get to 12 most of the time in 30 minutes, and somehow we'd, we'd do it. So uh, it's not a great story, but it works, and people love to tell their story in uh, the, the, the 30 minutes we have. So I have no doubt that you will have an excellent story to share with us. Cool. Uh, my first question, I'm going to start at the end of the bio there uh, with, with the book that has recently come out. Um, why did you decide to to write it or what was the the thought of putting it out now? Well, thanks for asking that question. I have been encouraged to write a bike write a bike <laughs> write a book since 2017 and an Irish seer and I just thought why would I want to go through that agony for a PR tool. Um and then I kept getting encouraged and the last intuitive told me you have three books to write. You have a lot to say and I was like, "Oh man, before it gets any worse, I better get going." Um, I've spent a lot of time really um, in self-reflection and um, a lot of time sort of understanding my history and um, putting the pieces together really showed me the power in that. I really didn't respect it, um, my own power and my own story. And so that was it initially. And then once it was finished, I was like, yeah, there are other people out there that may need this. Okay. So thank you for sharing that. And it must not have been easy. Well, I mean, you've got three books to write, so there's plenty of material, but it must not have been easy to put uh, something so personal onto a page and to be ready to share it with anyone and everyone. Did it take any convincing, any any soul searching, or were you were you ready to to kind of get this story out there as the first of three? So I really didn't want to take the trauma out of the carefully constructed compartments that they were in internally. Um, I had to really step up to the plate. And I'd like to talk about the title, Toxic Family. That was not my title. That's my publisher's title. Um, my title was Magical Illumination, because what I've realized is challenges and challengers have been actually great gifts in very odd packages. Okay. And why why were you okay with changing the title from uh, for Magical Illusion? Because I really heard what they said. People associate magical illumination with something very sort of sweet and divine. And not all of my story is sweet and divine. It's it's pretty intense in places. There's happy endings and there's evolution and there's beauty but there's also tenacity and grueling agony. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, as much as, as you're okay talking about it, 
Could you take us back to that morning after high school graduation when you decided it's time to go? What what were you thinking and, and what were you running from or leaving from? In the months leading up to it, I was starting to shake in my shoes. I mean, I realized at four, I was in trouble. I loved my mom and she was an incredibly gifted, talented woman, but I believe she was mentally ill. Um, her personality would swing. She would shift very quickly. You never sort of knew what was coming in the door. And she was also incredibly loving. So you'd be lulled in and then it could switch on a dime. I was four when I first realized it. She was giving us all baths. There were five of us. It was my turn. I was super excited. The water was totally gray, half full in the tub. And I was ready to get in. I was squirming around and her eyes just went and her personality switched and she grabbed my little arm with all her might, her thumbs pressed into mine. And she started to shake me. And she said, why are you such a bad girl? And started to beat me. And the room started to brown out and I saw the stars. And all I could think of was, what did I do to make my mommy so mad? Why am I such a bad girl? And I'm not safe here. And those instances repeated. So I knew I had to leave my home. I knew early. I knew I had to leave my little town. And it was really scary. I went to the shore, the Jersey Shore for the summer, and I worked there. And then I went on to college. Um, and in college, I worked my way out to an internship in New York City. That's all I wanted to do, Mike, get to New York City. I used to watch Barbara Walters on my beanbag chair in my basement, on <laughs> my belly. And I actually... I became her exercise um, trainer when I got to New York as a side job. Wow, that's that's an incredible progression. Uh, we'll hope to follow up on everything there. I want to start with that's that's a very vivid and traumatic picture you paint, especially for a four year old, and you you remember it quite vividly. Um, you mentioned having four brothers and sisters. Was it helpful to have other, I want to say, companions or to have peers in the house with you? Was it was it something that you had discussed or was it kind of just a flashpoint that you knew that as soon as I have an opportunity to leave, this is what I'm going to do? So that's a really insightful question. And I want to say now that my three brothers and my sister and I all have very different versions of growing up in the same home. My oldest brother, his version is almost a complete blackout. It was so traumatic. My sister believes she grew up in an idyllic setting. She was really privileged. My other two brothers have a different version. So um, it was sort of doggy dog. There wasn't a lot of love. There wasn't certainly enough to go around. So it was very competitive. We really competed for the scraps that were doled out. And then we also supported each other as well, too. And we're close today. That's that's incredible. I wasn't sure that's how the, that was going to end. But that's that's good to hear that you're still close. Um, the book, Toxic Family, who should read that? It's really for a person, maybe they're in adulthood and things aren't fitting into place. Pieces of the puzzle aren't coming together. They know somebody's up, but they really don't know what. Could be somebody that grew up in a, a toxic environment or a challenging family. Could be somebody who came from addiction or alcoholism, struggles with mental illness, all of the above. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that. That was my my take as well. That it appealed to quite a broad audience because even if it wasn't a similar situation, we all have um, relatable instances that might benefit from 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 reading your your story, especially the way that it's written. Um, changing gears a moment, though, you mentioned an internship in New York City. What was that internship? So my sophomore year, an alumni came through and she was an arts manager and I didn't know what that was. Um, and she talked about what she did. So I wrote her from the shore. I went back to the shore and I wrote her. I was like, can I come next summer? And she wrote back. She said, you can come this winter. We have a Broadway season and we need your help. So back then, internships were really frowned upon. They didn't want you to get, get out of the track. They wanted you to stay in the track. So I had to negotiate with the head of the dance department and then on to the dean of the fine art department. And he was actually the father of Maya Lin. She had just been awarded the Vietnam Vet War Memorial that she created in Washington, D.C. He had no idea what I was doing in his office. He had these horn rim spectacles and he was so super coiffed and all these beautiful art pieces that were lit in his office. And, you know, I could pick up on it. I was telepathic from growing up. I really needed to know for my survival, the temperament, the mood, the thoughts. And I could clearly see he didn't know why I was in there. So I just explained it all. I gave him the pitch and he's like, oh, sounds like a great idea. And the arts management um, program is still there at the university today. Um, and that's how I ended up in Greenwich Village at 19. I want to ask about Greenwich Village at 19 for sure. Before, I want to highlight that you were able to kind of develop a superpower from growing up in the household that you did, that you were able to use to your advantage. That's, that's wonderful that there was some positive uh, to come out of it. So I just want to highlight that. But take us to Greenwich Village as a 19-year-old. There's a, okay. I'm sure a lot to take in. Well, I do want to say there, there was a lot that I garnered that was positive in that environment. And one was my independence and my ability to, to put pieces together quickly on my own um, and to take take really difficult tasks and execute. Um, but Greenwich Village was scary. <laughs> I had never seen, like, I didn't know what a latte was. I had never seen, you know, um, mixed gender couples, you know, I just, I, 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 there was so much that I was so naive because I grew up in a town of 7,500 in the middle of central Pennsylvania. Um, and walking was the way that I educated myself, but I couldn't cross the line. I'd go over St. Mark's and hit the East Village. And it just was too freaky back then. Like, you know, a guy walking around with no clothes and an American flag like draped around him. And later I would meet him. It was Richard Hell from Richard Hell and the Voidoids, the punk punk rock band. Um, but yeah, it was, it was electric. You never knew what was going to happen. Um, and anything could happen. And it was still affordable back then. So artists could live there. Very nice. And you mentioned watching Barbara Walters as kind of your escape and then working with her as her trainer, I believe you said. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, well, my, a friend of mine was, was a personal trainer. It was very new back then. And she got the call and she was afraid to go. So she got on the other. She's like, <laughs> will you take on Barbara Walters? I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. And then Barbara ended up helping me. I had been sexually harassed in the workplace and she got the drift like immediately. And she's like, we're going into the office and we're confronting this man together this morning. And I'm like, yeah, wow. it's okay. <laughs> I'm going to handle it. 
And I did. Um, and that's when um, probably, you know, two weeks later, I launched my own talent brokerage firm. And my first deal um, on my own was to knock on the factory door and convince Andy Warhol to do a commercial for Pontiac. Okay. Okay. How, how, how did you practice for that conversation if you did? I think we're going to need another 12 questions in 30 <laughs> minutes, but um, I didn't practice. I I was desperate. It was a great opportunity and I was determined. And when I couldn't get anybody on the phone, I took the subway down to the factory and knocked on the door, told Fred why I was there, who was Andy's business manager. He said, okay, you come back the same time tomorrow and I'll let you call, talk to Andy. So Went back the same time, knocked on the door, sat in the foyer, and then the double doors to his studio opened. It was so dark in there, Mike. Like, I was kind of scared to walk in, but there was a pin spotlight coming down on Andy's head, and his hair was going in, like, seven different directions, and he had these three pugs running around the studio, and then they'd, like, pull on his pants, like, and he'd, like, lift them up. Oh, he adored those pugs, and he couldn't care less why I was there. I was yammering on, and then finally... He looks up and he looks into my eye and he goes, now, really, why should I do this? And I said, because you can have the pugs in the shop with you. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and that was really the deal that launched me. I, I, I bet it was. I and mean, that's, that's, it's quite a sell. First of all, going down there, not being afraid and then, and then using the dogs to, uh, to, uh, to seal the pitch. Very well done. Um, if you promise to do me a favor here, sometimes we go more than 12 questions. Sometimes you don't get to 12. So I don't really keep score. I don't think we'll get in trouble if we go over them. So if we keep that between us, we should be okay. Um, okay, I'll keep it quiet. Thank you. Uh, so that that's your first deal. How did you, how are you not, from coming from a town of 7,000, how are you okay talking to Barbara Walters, talking to Andy Warhol, two American legends, and I'm sure many others between New York and LA, how are you not not phased by that or you know you've got a friend who was a personal trainer but I, I can't I can't train Barbara Walters how are you I can do that so Mike probably like you I'm a super empath and it's really easy for me to get in somebody else's shoes and sense what they're feeling how they're being and I always knew even though I didn't have a lot of interaction with celebrities certainly not not in my town. Um, I think Doc Severinsen, who used to, you know, he was a band leader on some night show. His daughter went to the college that my father taught at. That was our big celebrity. But I just knew these people were like, you and me, they were pulling their pants on one leg at a time. They just had to do it in public. I've never heard it put that way before, and I, I kind of like it. So that's that's well said. What was the difference between being in New York and then going to LA at that time? So New York was compact. I knew how to push the buttons. When people told you no, they meant it. When people told you yes, they meant it. And in LA, it was like a nebulous sandbox and everybody was just nice to your face. And then behind your back, it'd be a whole nother story. And it was also a one trick pony town. It was the entertainment industry and that was it. And most everyone was climbing and they wanted to know what they could get from you and how they could make a connection to their next link. So how does and somebody like you with your superpowers who has empathy towards others, how do you handle that, that kind of change? Going from New York where you might be rude, people might be direct, but they're honest. But now you're in a place where you've got to decipher 
what people are saying and they may be just using you even if they are lying to your face. How was that transition? It was hard. First of all, the water's on the wrong side. You know, it's on the (laughs) west side. It should be on the east side. So that was really disorienting. Um, I got stuck. I mean, I thought I was going to LA for a career move and I did, but I really was going to LA to meet one of my greatest gurus who is the man who would become my ex-husband. And I really thought he was the be all and the end all. He he seemed like he was just out of the movies himself. He said all the right things. He had the right look. He seemed so caring. He seemed like he was my Prince Charming, but it actually turned out not to be true. And um, my empathic ways got the best of me. And also my insecurities, my upbringing, um, delivered a a fear of abandonment, a huge fear of abandonment. And I would hold on to scraps with both hands for all my might. I was so independent, Mike. And I was, people would say, you have so much power. You're so accomplished, but I was so terrified, especially if I didn't have male attention. I mean, since second grade and Billy Fritz, I had to have some kind of male attention. Um, And that cost me very big until I woke up to it. And this was the gentleman to do it. So I'm grateful. If you could, how in your mind at the time, if you did, how could you reconcile being so independent and still having that need for attention and fear of abandonment? Was it something that you acknowledged at the time or was it something you can see after the fact? I couldn't see it at the time. I could, I could get whiffs of it and it would surprise me and it wouldn't make sense. Um, I don't want to get to Southern California hooey, but it felt like an ancient belief. It felt like it was in my DNA and in my bloodline and in my lineage. So that that's, that's not, because I think a lot of people, when they come to that realization, they, in the time, in the moment, they kind of feel that this is who I am. I can't change this. I've got to learn to either live with this or to just acknowledge it and accept it. How how have you been able to overcome it and, and change? So it got too painful and a billboard had to land on my head. Um, I had bought our family home for us and um, I tried to work out the issues in the marriage. I tried to create a postnuptial agreement and we got to the last point and I thought our marriage was going to be saved. And that's when my husband crossed his arms and his eyes went in those slits and he said, I'm hiring an attorney and I'm filing for a divorce. And then he proceeded to camp out in the master bedroom. So I took a partial conversion in our garage with a mattress on the floor. And that's the billboard I needed to fall on my head, to wake up to what I was allowing and to step into my power. And it took one year of no contact, contact only in writing and silence, holding silence and working through that divorce until I could write him the six-figure check and he could be on his way. That's what it took. So just so to clarify that I'm hearing you correctly, you spent one year in the house together, living separate lives, and the ultimate solution was to to write that check. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. It could not have been easy. Okay. Uh, Changing gears once again for a moment here. Um, I usually like to ask this question up front, but we kind of dove right in. You've done some amazing things. You've done a lot of different things. If you meet somebody on the street tomorrow, what do you tell them that you do? 
Oh, that's a really good question, especially right now, because I'm still <laughs> consulting. Yeah, I'm still consulting with brands. They keep dragging me in, Mike. I can't give it up. It's too much fun. Um, but I'm also um, available for coaching, and I'm also an author. So um, really, I just say I'm a consultant because that kind of covers the bases. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, brand consulting. What does that? If someone doesn't know what that means, how can you, how can you explain it to somebody like me? So initially I matched celebrities with brands and then that led me into television and film producing and the reality TV thing got too nasty. I couldn't take it anymore. And I was the breadwinner and I wanted to be home with my son. So um, I shifted gears into PR from a media outreach and sort of biz dev perspective. And that's really how I started working with brands, sort of thought leadership, biz dev perspective, just based on what I've learned and okay. sort of the tenets that I live. So seeing that this is, this question's a little out there, we'll say, but seeing as that you got started with an internship that I don't want to say you didn't have uh, the background for, but you kind of fell into with your incredible background of things that you've done, has anybody written to you looking for you to kind of show them what you've done? Uh, maybe help help them walk on your path or your journey, or have have you have you gotten to? I'm sure in coaching you've done that, but have you have you gotten any wide eyed 19 year olds to say ask you to show you show you what show them what you've done? So if anything, I'd probably force myself upon those 19 years old year olds. <laughs> I'm I'm working with a client right now, and they have the interns around. There's six of them, and I think I've volunteered like three times to like help any of them. And I'm the one that's going to do the meet and greet with them. And one of them booked um, a client on a TV segment, and I offered to pay her transport up from San Diego to LA so she could go to the TV. Um, episode with them. I'm all about encouraging others. And it's kind of annoying. My 19 year old son is kind of mortified <laughs> when I go there. Well, I'm, I'm I'm so glad you said it that way because I'm now I'm now in my 40s. And as a 19 year old, that's how I would have taken somebody that was doing those things. But now I can see that it's like this this woman is just trying to help me. She's has such an incredible uh, experience. I, I want to be on that path. And this is how this is how I'm gonna, going to do it or how I'm going to learn. So keep keep doing it. It's for it's for their benefit, even if they don't realize it in the moment. So please, please stay at it. Uh, you mentioned the coaching practice. Who do you coach? Who do you work with? And what what are you working on? So it's individuals from all walks of life. It's kind of interesting and all different sorts of ages. And I just let them speak with me. I mean, so often, Mike, we're just not heard. Like nobody, nobody hears us. And I just listen. And I also intuit you know, what's happening with them. Sometimes I can't hold it back. That's the only problem. It just comes spilling right out of me. But um, it's basically to listen, to hear where they are in their life, where they may want to go, and then suggesting tools that may help them um, that have helped me. So you must see all different types of obstacles or all different types of hindrances that people are trying to work through, work around. For someone who's listening to this, who might feel stuck, who, if if they could contact you to work with them, but if if they can't do that, what's a good what's a good thing that uh, someone can do to kind of acknowledge uh, that they are in a place that they they need some assistance or there is something in their way to either acknowledge what it is or how they can begin to work around that? What are some of they could maybe do first? 
Okay. Well, first off, I just want to say, if you're hurting and you're out there, contact me, go to my website and I'll get on a call with you and have a conversation and help. I really want to help you because I've been there too. Um, and the other thing is I always tell people, wait until the miracle. You don't want to X yourself out <laughs> until, until you give it every opportunity um, and simple things not to let yourself get too hungry or angry or lonely or tired. I was so isolated and it was really important that I had human connection. And I'm really seeing that today. The more that we get into technology and into our, our phones and into our computers, and we're literally speaking with human beings through electronics. And it's painful because there's no connection. So, yeah, that's that's wonderful advice. The, the the first part of not letting yourself get to need things that your body fundamentally needs from from sleep to food, and then the the connection piece. Uh, you know, I'll just echo. We all we all certainly could do better of connecting uh, human human at this point because as we are speaking, you know, thousands of miles away via via technology, it's great that we can do this. But when we rely on this, there is a piece that miss that's missing from being in the same room together. Uh, as I look up, somehow we're well, already it's at also, time. Oh, shoot. But no, Mike, go, I just no, please say, go ahead. Please. It's also, it's also like you go out to dinner and you see a family and they're all on their phones and it's, it's painful. That's not a connection. I mean, yeah, that is amazing. We are 2,800 miles away from each other and this is a miracle. And I wouldn't want to take that away at all. But what I want to take away is the dang phones at the table or the phones on the vacation when you're in the forest and, <laughs> and you're communicating to each other via text and you're five feet away. There's something odd with that. Anyway, I know our time's up. No, there's, that's not, it's a terrible thing. And you're right that that's way too prevalent. Um, but yes, we we are a time, and as I've already proven in this 30 minutes, I can fire questions at you probably for another hour, but I will not do that. Uh, instead, uh, I feel like we've covered a good amount of ground, but is there anything that I didn't ask you that I probably should have? Just if you want more about me, just go to susangold.us, and that includes you that really wants to reach out and connect. Just do it. You can get to me direct there. So we will certainly post that. Uh, Susan, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to doing it again. Oh, me too. Thanks, Mike. You got it. Have a good one. You too.